You're listening to a podcast of the Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Church in the city of Cork on the beautiful south coast of Ireland. We hope and pray that it will be a blessing to you. So, welcome everybody. My name is Fiona, as Michael said. What do when we're planning for our future? So we're going to read the passage together now. Look here, you who say, today or tomorrow we are going to a certain town and will stay there a year. We will do business there and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while, then it's gone. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, you are boasting about your own pretentious plans, and all such boasting is evil. Remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. So I'm just going to be working through the passage verse by verse this morning. It's going to be very simple, very straightforward. I'm not adding or taking away from the Word of God in any way, shape, or form. We're just going to work through it together. So we're going to start with the first verse. Look here, you who say, today or tomorrow we're going to a certain town, we will stay there a year, we will do business there, and make a profit. Now James is giving this example. This isn't something that actually happened. He's talking about an example of a businessman. Now when you look at this, as I looked at it when I read it first, I would say, what's wrong with that? What is wrong with a businessman making plans for his business? What is wrong with him saying, we're going to go there, we're going to set up our business, we're going to stay there for a length of time, and we're going to make a profit? It doesn't sound like there's anything wrong with that, first of all, does it? I don't know about you, but I often make plans that way. I say, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And so when you read this and you read on further and James says, "Uh uh-uh, that's not how you should do it, you think to yourself, But does that mean that God doesn't want us to make plans? Should should we not plan? But God is not against us making plans. Not at all. In fact, we all have to make plans. If we didn't make plans, there'd be fairly chaotic lives, wouldn't we? So we have to make plans. We plan our day. We plan our week. Very often we look at the week ahead. We know what's coming up. We know what we have on. We have schedules. We have things to follow. We plan our, our month. We plan our year. We plan for the future. So that's not the problem. God is not against us making plans. And to quote the great Winston Churchill, he said, he who fails to plan, plans to fail. So plans are an important part of our lives. So don't walk out the door this morning saying, Fiona said, I don't have to plan anything. I'm just going to coast this week. That's not it. What God is against are plans that exclude him. Plans of self-sufficiency. Plans that say, I'm going to decide my own future because I can be a success on my own. That's what the businessman did not take into account. He didn't take into account what God's will was. And that's what God is against. The plans that don't take into account what it is that he wants for our life. If we look at the next verse, we can see a part of the reason why we shouldn't make plans in this in this way. It says, how do you know what your life is going to be like? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while and then it's gone. Have you ever driven through fog? Hands up if you've driven through fog before. 
I'm sure no, almost everybody in Cork, hilly Cork, has driven through fog. When you are driving along a road, you come to maybe the crest of a hill, everything is fine, as you, as you kind of rise to the top of one of Cork's lovely hills, you suddenly hit a patch of fog, out of nowhere. And as you come over the crest of the hill, and when you're in that fog, you can't see ahead of you. You don't know what's coming next, it's quite hard to see, everyone turns on their fog lights, then forgets to turn them off again later. But as you come to the crest of that hill and come down the other side, you start to come out of the fog. The fog is there and it's gone in an instant. And James is saying that that's what our lives are like. Now for us, our lives seem to stretch ahead of us forever or stretch behind us forever, depending on where you are in that time scale. But James is saying that in the scheme of things, our lives are like the morning fog. I live in Ahada, it's a small little town out near the sea, out past Middleton. And very often we get fog. As you're coming down near the seafront, there can be a morning fog. But it's gone in an instant. And that's what James is telling us. Your lives are short. You don't know if you have it tomorrow. So does this mean that I shouldn't plan for tomorrow just in case I don't wake up? Not at all. What it means is that when I am planning for tomorrow, I need to take into account that only God knows the number of my days. So he knows best what my tomorrow should be like. And it means that because my life is short, I want to make it count. I want to make it count for God. I want to do what it is that he wants me to do. Because it is short. And what's the point in wasting it? And that's what James is saying is, don't assume that you have a tomorrow and take God out of the picture completely. Trust that God knows your tomorrow and that he has a plan for it. And then we move on. Oh. I want to read quickly from Luke. This is a parable that Jesus told, and this is an example again of somebody who didn't know what his tomorrow held. So we're going to read this quickly together. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth but not have a rich relationship with God. And that is the crux of what James is saying too, is that when we're planning for tomorrow that we don't even know we have, we make plans that exclude God. And this rich man, now I am not rich enough to have that much earthly wealth that I need to build extra barns to store it. And if you are, God bless you and come and talk to me afterwards. But this man was so rich that he looked at the barns that he had, which were perfectly adequate. And he decided, I'm going to tear them down because I have more. I have more and enough to store for years to come and build new barns. And God said to him, not only will you not enjoy your wealth for years to come, you won't even have one day to enjoy it. So that man made plans that excluded God and his life was gone. That's a sobering thought. And for me, it puts into context any of the plans I make. Because I need to know that God knows the timeline of my life. 
So I want to submit my plans to him. And if we move on, then this is where James says, right, that's what you should not do. Here is what you should do. What you ought to say is if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. So now James is teaching us what we should do. So what we should do is we should submit our plans to God. Now, I remember years ago, my husband and I, we were engaged, we were planning our wedding, we were absolutely stony broke, and we were looking for somewhere to live. So we had, my husband is from France, you probably know him, Farad, he's also a leader down in Cafe Church, he's also preached up here in the center. So we were looking for somewhere to live. Farad had, we had both moved actually recently back to Ireland. Farad was doing a master's, he had a few hours teaching, I had an office job which paid peanuts, and we're saving for a wedding, and now we're faced with the dilemma of where do we live. Neither of us are from, are from Cork originally, so we needed to look for somewhere to live. And we, we were with a friend one night, so we were looking to rent somewhere, and that was kind of the plan that we had, and we were with a friend one night, and this friend worked with an auctioneer. And she said to us, would you think about buying a house? And we laughed in her face, because we had nothing. We had no savings, we had very little earnings, everything that we did have was going to pay for this wedding that was happening in a few months' time. So we just laughed at her, and she said, why, why, why do you think that's funny? So because we have nothing, we have no possibility, and there is no way that a bank is going to give us money to buy a house. And she said, you'd be surprised. Yeah, I would, I'd be very surprised. But anyway, Farid said, We'll pray about it. The guard was a Christian as well, so we gathered together, the three of us, and we submitted the plan to God. We said, you know what, God? If this is part of your plan for us right now, then we just leave it to you. You're in charge, you're in control, and if it's what you want, you'll work it out. That was it, very simple prayer. Next morning, the three of us headed to church together. And I am not exaggerating when I say this. Every single person that spoke that morning from the children to the pastor, to everybody spoke about building houses, buying houses, settling down, purchasing land. Everybody from the start of the meeting to the end of the meeting. And the three of us looked at each other and said, you think? Do you think God is saying yes? But you know what? We submitted that plan to God. For us, it was unrealistic. But we still went before him and said, if you want it, then we will do it. And we did. And we're still in our house, years later, still in that same house. So God does answer. When we give it over to him, when we ask of him, he answers us back. And you know, there's a, a saying in Ireland, a lot of older people would say it, God willing, or please God, they'll add to the end of a sentence. So they'll make a plan and they'll say, oh sure, we'll see you next year, please God. Or I'm going to go over there now, God willing. And that's a wonderful habit to have, but a lot of the time I wonder, is that all it is? Is it just a habit? My husband is originally from a Muslim family, and they have their own version of God willing, and it's inshallah. And my mother-in-law says it at the end of everything. You can't talk about what you're going to eat for dinner, but she's inshallah at the end of it. And every time I ask her to visit us, actually, she says, Maybe next year now, inshallah. I think she's trying to avoid me at this stage, you know. But I do think that a lot of the time, 
adding God willing to the end of something is almost a way of not committing to it. It's almost a way of getting out of something that we're not maybe too sure of ourselves. Oh, God willing, now that'll happen. And inside we're thinking, no way, absolutely not. I'm not going to do that. But it's a way of saying, I'm leaving it in the hands of the powers that be. But you know, that's not the way that this was actually intended to be used. If we look at the New Testament examples, when Paul said, if God wills it, or if God wants it, he genuinely meant. So when a lot of, in a lot of Paul's letters to the churches, he might end it on, I would, I would love to visit you. On my way to Jerusalem next year, I'll stop off if God wants me to. And what Paul genuinely meant was, if God wants me to, I will stop off and visit you. And the converse is, if God does not want me to, I will not do it. And that's where some of us stumble. If God wants me to, might often bring a blessing or something that we want to do. But if God does not want me to, then I won't do it. And that's where the hard part can sometimes come, because we actually want to do the thing. So when we say this, we need to be fully dependent on God's will. We need to be fully compliant with God's will when we say this. We can't just pay lip service by adding it on to the end of every sentence and saying, God willing, now that'll happen. We actually have to mean, if God wants this, I will do it. Does that make sense? Right. So, while I was preparing this message, I was thinking, well, what do I need to know about God in order to trust him so completely that I would say, if God wills it, I will do it, and if God does not will it, I won't do it. What do I need to know about him? And for me, I think there are two things that I need to know about God. I need to understand his absolute sovereignty, and I need to understand, know what his will is. How can I do his will if I don't know his will? So for me, those are the two things that I need to know about God. And interestingly, these are two of the things that came into my last message. When I spoke, the last time that I was up here, I was speaking on unanswered prayer, and I spoke about understanding the sovereignty of God and knowing his will. So there's one of two things that's happening here. Either God is saying, Fiona, I really want you to understand this, or he's saying, church, I really want you to understand this. And I'm hoping it's the latter. So I am going to look this morning at understanding God's sovereignty and knowing his will. When I say God's sovereignty, what do I mean? Sorry. When I say God's sovereignty, I mean that he is the ruler of all. He is the absolute authority over everything. He created everything and he rules over everything he created. That's what it means to be sovereign. It means to be the absolute authority over everything. So when I was looking at this, I was thinking of an example. And an example of the absolute authority of God over everything is found in the book of Job. If you don't know the story of Job, you can find it in the Old Testament in the book of Job. And Job was a very wealthy man who was very blessed by God. But one day, Job started to lose everything that ever mattered to him. All his wealth, all his family, 
his health, everything was taken away from him. And Job was very confused as to why this was happening. But he never lost his faith in God. But one day, when he'd had enough, he did. He turned on God. He didn't lose his faith in him, but he turned on him and started questioning him. And God's answer to Job was this. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations? And who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? And God speaks to Job like this for three chapters, telling him about where he was when the earth was created and asking Job, where were you? Now, I don't know about you, but if God spoke to me like that, I'd be fairly humbled. This is the creator of the earth. He is the all-seeing, all-knowing God. And let me just put in a caveat here. Job's mistake was not that he turned to God with his questions, because that's an important part of the process, is turning to God with the hard questions. Job's mistake was that he assumed that God had done something wrong, or that God didn't know what was happening to him. And God said to him, I know everything. I was there when the earth was created. Where were you? And for me, when I think about that absolute power and authority of God, I think to myself, how foolish would I be to make plans without including God? How foolish would I be to think I know what's better for me than what God knows? Because he knows everything. And so the key here is to turn to God with our plans, to come to him with those questions, and to say to him, you are the all-seeing, all-knowing God, and I am going to submit my will and my plans to you. That's the key here. And if we move on to the next verse in James, he says, Otherwise, you are boasting about your own pretentious plans, and all such boasting is evil. So here he's, uh, James is telling us, if we don't submit our plans to God, and if we don't say, if it is God's will, then what we are doing is boasting in our own plans. So we're taking on the credit and the authority over our own lives and saying, I don't need God in my plans. And you know, when I think of boasting, I think it's not really a very nice trait in someone, is it? If someone is bragging or boasting or showing off, it's not a very endearing quality. But that's probably as far as I would go in, in talking about boasting. But James goes further and he says it's evil. It is evil to boast in your own plans. Now that's very strong language. So why is it evil? And it is evil because we are taking God completely out of it and we are becoming filled with pride in our own selves and our own sufficiency, and we are saying that we are no longer dependent on God. So when we make plans that don't take into account the will of God 
and we start to say, I have control over my own life and I can do this, I've got this. A little bit like the rich men in the parable earlier where we say, I've set myself up for years to come now. I'm going to build big barns and then I'm going to sit back, feet up, take it easy because I've got this and I've done this on my own. That, James says, is evil. That's what he tells us about it. We are taking God out and we are saying, I don't need him. I've got this. And then we move on to the last verse. And for me, this verse is the most challenging. Because it says, remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. Now, first of all, let me say what sin is. So sin is any act of disobedience against God. It is a rebellion against God. That's what sin is. So when I think of that, I think of an action on my part. I think, well, I must do something in order to sin. There must be something that I do that makes me sin. But James here is saying, actually, it's also sin to not do something. So that's a little bit confusing because we think of sin as something that we do. For example, I know that I shouldn't steal. Therefore, if I steal something, I have now committed a sin. That is now sin. I have done something. I have performed an action, which means that I have sinned. But James is saying in this verse that actually also knowing the thing that I should do and not doing it is also sin. Because we don't exist in a vacuum. We don't ever really do nothing, do we? So if I'm not doing what I should do, I'm probably doing something that I shouldn't do. Because most likely, I'm not just standing still doing nothing. I don't know about you, maybe you sit at home doing nothing an awful lot, but I don't. <laughs> if I'm not doing what I should do, then I'm very possibly doing what I shouldn't do. Let me give you an example. I know that I should spend time in the Word of God, studying it, reading it, learning it, absorbing it. But sometimes, and this is a moment of confession, sometimes when I know that that's what I should be doing, I pick up my phone instead. And I might flick through social media. So I'm now not doing what I should do, which is study God's word, but I'm also not doing nothing because I'm choosing instead to spend my time and my attention somewhere else. Does that make sense? Okay. So we're going to move on then to understanding the difference between those two types of sin. These two things are called sins of commission and sins of omission. Now, I'm using the word sin an awful lot. And I know that that can make people feel uncomfortable. Sometimes as Christians, we almost avoid the word sin because it might make us feel uncomfortable. It might make other people feel uncomfortable. And we don't like making anybody feel uncomfortable, do we? But James didn't avoid the word sin and God doesn't avoid the word sin. So I'm not going to avoid it. Sorry. So when we look at this, a sin of commission is doing what we know we shouldn't do. And a sin of omission is not doing what we know we should do. I'm going to give two very quick examples from the Bible of this ty these type of sins. The first one, for me anyway, when I think of someone who didn't do what he knew he should do, I think of Jonah. 
Michael has shared on Jonah recently, so probably most of you are familiar with the story of Jonah. Jonah got a message from God for the people of Nineveh. He did not want to give it, so he ran the other way. But God pursued him, brought him back, and in the end, Jonah had to deliver the message anyway. Jonah's sin of omission was not giving the message to the people of Nineveh. God had clearly told him, this is a message, these are the people I want you to give it to, go and do it. And Jonah decided, I know what I should do, but I'm not going to do it. But his sin of commission was that he ran the other way. He didn't just exist in a vacuum. He didn't do nothing. He ran away from God, ran as far away from Nineveh as he possibly could. But God's will was supreme. So Jonah had to end up in the belly of a fish for three days, spat out, and then he had to go and tell the people of Nineveh anyway. The other example from the Old Testament, again, is the Tower of Babel. Now, if you're not familiar with the story of the Tower of Babel, there was a people group who wanted to settle in a particular area, and they decided to build this really, 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 really high tower, which would reach the skies. And God did not want that, so he came down, and he gave them all new languages, and he scattered them. So they could no longer communicate with each other easily and they could no longer live together and they all had to separate. But when you look at this story, what some of us don't know is that that same people group, two, the story of the Tower of Babel is found in Genesis 11 and two chapters previous to that in, in Genesis 9, that same people group or at least some of them or their, their very near ancestors had gotten off a very large boat and God had saved them from a very great flood. And when they got off that ark, God said to them, I want you to multiply and repopulate the earth. That was the command he gave them. This is what I want you to do. And two chapters later, which is roughly 400 years, which seems like an awful long time, but they lived an awful long time back then. So very likely the same group of people, or at least their first generation offspring, were within the same people group who stopped in a particular area and said, I'm done. I'm done with the whole repopulate the earth thing. I'm done with the whole scatter yourself all over the earth. We'll all just settle here. Okay, let's forget what we've been sent to do. Let's just settle here will build this really high tower. And then they actually said the words, then we cannot be scattered all over the earth. So they actually knew exactly what they were doing when they made this plan. But God came down and said, nah, gave you a job. You're not going to do it my way? Fine. So he then mixed up their languages and spread them all over the earth anyway. So they ended up having to do what it was that God wanted them to do in the first place. They just took the harder road to do it. So their sin of omission was not scattering all over the earth and repopulating it. And their sin of commission was choosing to stay in one place and build this really high tower so that they could stay together. So in our lives, we are all guilty of both types of sin. We are all guilty at some point in our lives of a sin where we don't do what it is that God wants us to do and we choose instead to do what he doesn't want us to do. But what we must remember is that as with the two examples, at the end of the day, God's will is supreme. 
and he will carry out his wishes and he will follow his plan whether we want it or not, whether we choose to go along with it or not. And there are three negative ways that we can treat the will of God. We can ignore it as if there were no God. We can acknowledge there is a God, but think that our will is more important than his. Or, and as Christians, I think this is the one that we probably most easily fall into, we can acknowledge there is a God whose will is supreme, but not do it. And that's not to say that we deliberately set out to ignore the will of God. I'm sure that most of us here don't set out to say, well, I know exactly what God wants me to do, but I'm not going to do it because I just don't feel like it. We do this without even sometimes realizing that we're doing it. We're not listening to the prompting of God, or we don't like what it is that he's telling us, or we're uncomfortable with it, or we think that there's another way that we can get around it. But we, and at the end of the day, we are putting our will over his if we choose not to do what it is that he wants us to do. So, that brings us to the last point this morning. What is the will of God? How do I know what the will of God is? It's one thing to say that I want to follow the will of God, but how can I do that if I don't know what his will is? Well, I'm going to say that we overcomplicate it as Christians. I think that we try sometimes too hard to seek the will of God in certain situations. I'm going to bring it right back to the basics this morning. And there are three things that I absolutely, for sure, 100% know the will of God on. And those are, firstly, it tells us in 1 Timothy 2, 3 to 4, this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. The will of God is that everyone be saved. So that's the first thing that I know for sure about the will of God. The second thing, in Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. The second thing that I know that God wants for all of us as Christians is that we be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the third thing that I know that God wants for each and every one of us is found in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3, God's will is for you to be holy. So if we look at those three things, I think that any time that you are seeking the will of God in your life, that you're wondering what it is that God wants you to do in a certain situation, I think that if you ask yourself these three questions, things will become a little bit clearer. Ask yourself, am I saved? What does that mean? It means have I recognized that I am a sinner who needs a savior? Have I acknowledged that Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection are the only way for my sins to be forgiven? Have I done that? That's the first question. The second question, am I spirit-filled? Are you spirit-filled? Remember that verse where it said, do not be drunk with wine, instead let yourself be filled with the Spirit. For research purposes, I read up on what it's like to be drunk. And I'm going to inform you because I'm sure that none of you have had the experience personally. So when somebody is drunk, the alcohol in their system makes them lose all inhibitions. 
and they start doing very foolish things. They are no longer in control of their thoughts, their words, their actions. That's what it's like to be drunk. So when we are drunk with wine, it is the wine that is controlling how we act and how we speak and how we behave. And what God is saying is instead of being drunk with wine, let, it be, you let yourself be so filled with the Spirit that it is the Spirit of God that's controlling you. And that it is Him that is controlling your thoughts, your words, your actions. So if you can say yes to that question, it means that you are saying, it is the Spirit of God that controls me. It is the Spirit of God that leads me on a daily basis. It is the Spirit of God that guides my steps. So if you can say yes to that question, let's move on to the last question on the list. Are you living a holy life? What does it mean to live a holy life? We are told that the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. Sanctifies means makes us holy. That means makes us more like Christ. So if you are living a holy life, you are living a life that reflects that you are saved and that you are spirit-filled. You are living a lifestyle that reflects that God is changing you from the inside. If you are living a holy life, in order to live a holy life, you have to know what it is that God wants you to do. So if you are wondering this morning, if you are living a holy life and you're unsure, search the scriptures. What does God tell us about the lifestyle that he wants us as Christians to live? What does he tell us about our speech, about sexual immorality, about drunkenness, about the way we treat others? That's what it means to live a holy life. It means to know what it is that God wants us to do, to know how it is that he wants us to live, and to allow that spirit that is filling and controlling us to also sanctify us, to change us from the inside so that we are more reflective of who Jesus is. And that, I think, is key to knowing the will of God. If we can answer yes to all of these questions, then we are already in the flow of God's will. We are already being led and guided by the Spirit. So the questions that we have on things like, should I marry that guy? Should I buy that house? Should I take that job? Those become easier for us to answer because we are led and controlled by the Spirit of God who is changing us and renewing us and making us more like Christ. It's not complicated. We overcomplicate it. We wait for big signs. We want something from the angels to sing from heaven to give us the answers. But we need to be connected to the living God. We need to have a relationship, one that feeds off of the living God. A couple of years after moving into our house, Farid and I, we'd had our, our first child, and I'm originally from Killarney, and Farid is from France, and we suddenly found ourselves a little bit distant from family. And when you have a child, you suddenly realize that you kind of need your family around. Where a distance before that had been very appealing for me, 
I suddenly found that myself drawn back towards home a little bit, a little bit more of a reliance on my own mother. And so we started questioning whether we should now move from this house that God had provided for us. And maybe we could move. We still wanted to stay in Cork. Our jobs were here. Our church was here. Our friends were here. But maybe we could move to the other side of Cork and be that an hour closer to Killarney and make that distance a little bit less long. And we were thinking about this and we were praying about it and seeking God's will. And one night we were at the meeting here on a Tuesday night and somebody spoke a word. They didn't know who they were, who it was for. But the word was, God was saying, I have put you where I have placed you and you are looking to the left and to the right, but I want you to stay where you are. And again, we knew in a very simple moment, in a very simple way, we knew that God was speaking to us and God was answering because again, we had submitted it to him. And again, we were connected and reliant and dependent on him. And that's the key, is that connection and that dependence on knowing what it is that God wants. And if you're living that out on a daily basis, then it becomes easier, doesn't it, in the big decisions? So I'm going to give you very, the very last thing, three things that I think we can do when we're, when we're planning something. The first one is that we plan prayerfully. When you are making plans, I'm not talking small plans, I'm not talking where will we eat dinner this evening. We knew a guy and every morning he would stand in front of his wardrobe and he would say, Lord, what do you want me to wear today? That wouldn't work for me, I'm afraid. But maybe it worked for him. I'm not taking away from what he did, but that is not what I'm talking about here this morning. I'm talking about when you're at one of those crossroads in your life, when you're making a plan as to where you might live or where you might move to. When you're doing that, plan prayerfully. Include God in those plans. Don't be like that businessman who just decided to up sticks and leave and never once consulted God on it. The second thing is submit to sovereignty. Knowing that God is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-seeing, submit to what it is that he wants. Submit your plans to him. Say, God willing, and mean it. Mean, if God wills it, I will do it. And if God does not will it, I won't do it. And the last thing is to act accordingly. When you know what it is that God wants you to do, do it. Otherwise, James tells us, it's sin. And none of us want to fall into sin. So let us act accordingly. When we have planned prayerfully and we have submitted to the sovereignty of God and his will becomes clear in our lives, let us do it. So that's it. That's how simple it is to plan with God. So this morning, I'm going to call the worship team back up and we're going to pray for those things. I want to pray for anyone who does not know they are saved, for anyone who is unsure of their salvation, for anyone who has not had that moment where they have recognized their need for a savior. I'm going to pray that each and every one of us would be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
that we would be so filled with the Spirit that he controls and guides and leads our every thought and action. I am going to pray that we would be made holy, that the Holy Spirit would sanctify us and help us to lead holy lives. And lastly, for anybody here who is facing a decision, who is standing at that crossroads and does not know which way to go, I am going to pray after the worship team sing. I am going to pray that God would make it clear which way we should turn, what road we should take, and that he is the one that directs us and guides us down that road. So let us worship together and then we'll pray.